and welcome to Raven Conversations, the show where we bring you the news and information around the Washington National Guard. I'm Sarah Morris, and on today's episode, Jason and I sit down with Colonel Kevin McMahon and Command Sergeant Major Eric Sandlin from Joint Task Force Steelhead. Joint Task Force Steelhead has been the Washington National Guard's main element in support of the COVID-19 response, and during our conversation, we work our way through the response from March to present day. Enjoy! Bigfoot country is earthquake country. If an earthquake were to happen right now, what would you do? When you feel the ground shaking, drop, cover, and hold on. Do not run or you may be injured by things falling. Remember, if you are near the ocean, the ground shaking is your warning that a tsunami may be coming. After the shaking stops, move to high ground and stay there. Make sure to listen to local emergency officials. Have enough supplies to be self-sufficient for two weeks after a disaster. For more information about earthquakes in Washington, visit mill.wa.gov preparedness. Be sure to follow us on social media. Stay up to date on all the cool events, stories, photos, and videos happening around the Washington National Guard. If you have a question, have a comment, or just want to say hi, send us a DM, PM, tweet at us, whatever, and we'll answer you. We also love to share and collaborate. Send us the photos or videos you take at Drill or AT, and we'll tag you. Are you an active Instagrammer? Well, you might be a perfect candidate to take over our account. Send us a message, and we'll set something up. To find us, do a search for WA National Guard. That's W-A National Guard, and look for the blue check mark. All right. So today I am with Jason and we are going to talk to Colonel Kevin McMahon and Command Sergeant Major Eric Sandland and we're going to talk about COVID and how we responded to that. Uh, But first, if you would like to introduce yourselves. Sure. Uh, Colonel Kevin McMahon. I'm the uh, commander of the 96th Troop Command and also the commander of the 10th Homeland Response Force. Command Sergeant Major Eric Sandlin, 96 Troop Command, Command Sergeant Major, and Joint Task Force uh, CSM. And then the COVID response is Joint Task Force Steelhead. It is, yep. And then what is that comprised of uh, personnel-wise? So um, the, the Joint Task Force originally, and it, there's been some modifications since we've been at this since late March, um, but we have a, a, a task force that we refer to as the Olympic, which is a west side of the state doing food bank missions. Then on the east side, we have Task Force Columbia, which is also doing food bank missions. We had uh, a task force uh, Kokanee, which is doing uh, COVID mapping for the Department of Health. And um, then we have Task Force Dragon, which is doing our test kit assemblies along with uh, COVID-19 tests uh, for the civilian population. Uh, and then we also had uh, Task Force Coho, which was Employment Security Division work that has since shut down. shut down. And that's Air, Army, and State Guard. Correct. Okay. And then I guess we can start with March. Yeah, so take us all the way back to, to March. I mean, like uh, me, I was just coming back from deployment, and I was uh, being quarantined in, in uh, El Paso. And um, I was being promised yeah. just two weeks with my darling angel at home. <laughs> and here we are. So I guess 
What did what did it look so, like in March, yeah. and then we'll sort of progress from there. Sure. So originally, what we were standing up was a, a dual status command. Um, so Brigadier General Brian Grennan had been uh, tasked to be the dual status commander, and within that, then we have a Title Thirty Two uh, National Guard element, and then a Title Ten or active duty element. Um, Northcom then sent out a uh, colonel and a team that was responsible for the Title Ten employment of forces that were inbound to the state of Washington. And then I was uh, asked to be the uh, Title 32 commander for all National Guard forces here within the state of Washington. Sergeant Major Sandlin was tagged to be the uh, senior enlisted advisor for General Grennan. And for approximately a month to six weeks, um, we worked as a dual status command staff and team, uh, building uh, some hospital capacity up in the greater Seattle area. Uh, as at the same time, we started to build uh, some food bank capability and then started to get additional requests for what we saw, uh, which was the, uh, the testing capability, the support to Employment Security Department. Um, we even moved around uh, ventilators that we were receiving from out of state to local hospitals uh, because there was a concern that we just didn't have enough within the state of Washington. I think early on it was very, very much about hospital capacity. It wasn't as much as where we are today. And the, in those early days, we were working a lot with the Title 10 on getting assets from Colorado, Joint Base Lewis-McChord medical assets to assist the hospitals in, in their capacity. Um, and as that kind of wound down over a six-week period, then we transitioned back. Title 10 status went away, and it went to just a Title 32 support role at that point. Can you explain the difference between Title 10 and 32, what the, what the differences are? Title 10 is active component, active army. Um, U.S. Code Title 10 refers to active component. U.S. Code Title 32 refers to the Army National Guard. Mm. Actually, not Army, but the National Guard, whether it's Army or Air Force. Okay, uh, so originally there were active duty troops that were asked to help yeah, so out and, and when you when you say dual status command can you explain that a little bit so what that was uh, what that was was colonel or as you were general grennan was in charge of the active duty troops that were within the the who was active duty does not work generally for a municipality that's mm -hmm. a national guard role and so therefore active component does not take instructions from the mayor of Seattle or the governor of the state of Washington. You need that officer, that National Guard officer, to be the one in charge. Uh, and okay. so for that six-week period, uh, the folks that were at the CenturyLink Field Hospital, they fell under the, under the dual command of the active component Army and General Grennan at the same time. Mm. Um, and at some point the active component would have dropped off and it would have been st solely General Grennan in charge, but we never reached that point because they weren't utilized as they were designed. Was he on Title 10 orders then as the dual status commander? So he was. Okay. Yep. Mm. And, and the unique thing about the dual status command, uh, which has been used several times within the, uh, the national response framework, is that, as Sergeant Major talked about, um, it's that relationship between the active component forces and the National Guard uh, which is why Northcom sent out an 06 um, active duty officer. And so if you kind of think of it in this way, so General Grennan, if there was an active component requirement, he would turn to that officer and say, I need you guys to go do this mission. Uh, and then that officer would turn around and coordinate and, and execute as such. 
And then if there was a requirement for the National Guard, General Grennan would turn to me as the Title 32 deputy commander and say, I need the National Guard to go do this. And so he's kind of that that uh, overarching mm. mission command. Kind of like that bridge between the two exactly. services. Yep. And then those two colonels will Sorry. go execute either a Title 10 or Title 32 mission on behalf of what he's been asked to do from either the governor or from the, the, the state of Washington. Makes sense. Don't want to, like, go off the, uh, too off the beaten path about, you know, Title 10 and, and dual status command, but isn't there some kind of training that this General Grenon has to go through in order to be, I guess, qualified to... Yeah. to yeah, so it's a, a NORTHCOM program, um, and so I can speak fairly uh, clearly on that because I, too, am dual status command qualified. Mm. And uh, what you end up going to first is uh, you go through a number of um, uh, online courses that are, are done by FEMA, uh, such as ICS 100 all the way up to, uh, to 700 and 800. Uh, then you do uh, some additional uh, training, and then you go to a week course at NORTHCOM to become a joint task force commander. Uh, and then you come back after a period of time, do a little bit more online training, and mm-hmm. then you end up going to the dual status commander course again back at NORTHCOM. And that whole process takes about a year mm-hmm. uh, and is fairly formalized um, to the point now that each state is really recommended to have a, a bench of dual status commanders. So in the event that there's a, an event mm-hmm. like COVID, that you have a group of people that you can pull from. Okay. Yeah, because this has to have been used quite a, a bit in the past, right, with the different national di- disasters or natural disasters that require a large response. Yeah, if there's a event such as the Democratic National Convention uh, back in 2016 had a dual status commander, uh, the Super Bowl that was in New Jersey and uh, the New York area had a dual status commander because it spanned two different states and the overall impact that it was going to have, um, so there's been a number of instances over the, the past 10 years where we've had a, a dual status commander. And the, and the genesis of this really was Hurricane Katrina. Right. Mm. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay. So we're now we're in April now time we, frame. Yeah. April, um, May. May, I think, right? We Six weeks-ish. May-ish. Yeah. So the, the response really for us changes more towards food banks first? Well, food banks, uh, as, as Sergeant Major talked about, the focus originally was really the hospital capacity. Right. So that's where we were distributing out the ventilators, uh, making on-site inspections right. throughout the state. And then when it was realized that there was a lot more capacity within those hospitals, that's where we started to see more of a shift uh, and an understanding that the, uh, uh, the hospital that was set up in Seattle really not required. Uh, and that's where food bank missions really started to flow in. Um, the request for um, even having our 10th Homeland Response Force, Suburban Task Force, start to do testing uh, for COVID-19 uh, started to pick up as well. Uh, but the, definitely the food banks was was where the uh, the initial request started to come in for mm-hmm. Title 32 forces. I think one of the other, around that period, one of the other things that was happening is simultaneously with the uh, hospital missions, with the Title 10 aspect, the state EOC we were working well with them and they were getting the requests in and that's where um, as they started seeing the capabilities that the National Guard had then they started saying oh well we can add this and we can add this and and it just never stopped it just kept growing and growing with with everything they asked we were able to meet what they were what they were needing and that went on for now months (laughs) and and to be clear I mean it was larger than just the the Joint Task Force steelhead we had um, 
elements of the National Guard that were helping the Department of the Health and the State Emergency Operations Center kind of analyze where the counties were at, uh, taking a bunch of data and then massaging that to where they could give that to senior leaders so they could make decisions. Uh, we had another element that uh, worked with the Department of Health to figure out, okay, if a county all of a sudden said they just did not have the capacity, how do we support them as a state? Uh, and they were able to come up with basically what I would call as a hospital in a box to where they could right. roll in, set it up, and give that to the county for them to operate and run. And that was, um, that was planned, that was rehearsed, and that was even staged early on until, again, we realized as a state that the, the, the need just wasn't there for, for that kind of support. Awesome. We also had challenges in that early, those early, early days when, when you have a need and people keep asking for right. people. How do you, you know, we mobilize normally for fires, floods, things like that. And, and in this particular aspect, when you're talking about food support and all of the other associated things we did, in those very, very early days, we didn't have, um, you know, the, the hundreds upon hundreds of soldiers and airmen coming, coming out to help. Right. Um, in the first few days, we, we used some of our full-time force to get out there and start that process until we could backfill. So it was pretty challenging to begin with trying to figure out who do we pull, what units do we pull, and, and I think how do, we, how do we move the formation forward uh, with the least amount of impact to our service members. Well, and I think, too, it's unique in that there's a risk to all of the service members who go out to these sites, right, because they're also at risk for developing COVID, and then we also have the PPE struggle. So I guess what was our PPE struggle there at the beginning, and how did we get through that? Sir? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of the main uh, areas uh, that we received support from was through the um, – uh, the 10th Homeland Response Force reached back to what's called Comp Subcent. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, if you're not familiar with the 10th Homeland Response Force, it is a FEMA Region 10 uh, element, about 450 service members that can respond to a chemical, biological, nuclear, or radiological event within those states. And there is a podcast about it. Yes. If you just <laughs> look it up, we did one. And, and so there are specific PPE that we have to support said response. Um, we were able to reach back to our higher headquarters uh, for the, the 10th Homeland Response Force and ask for additional PPE to help with that. And that was pushed to us. Uh, and then our service members were uh, able to use that. In addition, there were the same um, struggles that most states experienced in just trying to get M95 masks, um, you know, a variety of, of PPE requirements, uh, and and the other thing is the the federal government, you know, did push a, a number of assets and resources to the state of Washington as well, and then all of that was distributed out to uh, either the counties or the local municipalities for their usage as well. Awesome. The other thing we did, we spent a lot of a lot of calories trying to figure out where the risks were, right? And then how do we mitigate those risks? As an example, you would think that our test sites, which we stood up would be the most risky place for our service members to be. And because of that Seaburn Task Force capability, we were able to put them in what's called a PAPR mask, a self-contained um, self breathing system. Right, They're, they have incredible yeah. mm -hmm. mask situations. It's, it's some of the best <laughs> yeah. in the world. Right. And so that limits the risk. Um, and Colonel McMahon and I often talked about how the riskiest place we have our service members is the absolute safest right. because they have the PPE and they're able to, um, there, there's, there was almost zero chance of anyone getting sick at that location. 
uh, and then we had to look at the other locations and figure out what was the what was the risk at every single every single aspect of what we're doing and how to protect our service members. And then didn't we get a bunch of things donated as well, like masks and stuff? So we did. Um, you know, we traveled, uh, Sergeant Major and I would travel around fairly consistently uh, to throughout the, the state. And uh, people were making masks in the local community and bringing those by, whether it was a food bank or a test site. Um, and so they would they hand that to our service members. Um, and so there was a, a great kind of grassroots effort as well to ensure that our service members were protected. I would like to, to note, you know, Sergeant Major made a great comment about our capability for our suburban task force and at the test sites. Um, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, because our data is changing a little bit now that we're in November and we're starting to spike a little bit. But to date, we've had somewhere around 1,300 service members that have rotated through the joint task force at one point in time. And within all of those individuals out in all the communities that they're, they're working, We've had a number of scares where individuals have been quarantined, right. but the total number of service members that have become positive within the JTF is 17. Wow. Which is, is pretty amazing right. and is truly a credit to our non-commissioned officers and officers out there that are making sure that, that we're looking out for the force health protection of our service members who are trying to help the citizens of the state of Washington. Yeah, for sure. That's good. Wow. <clears throat> um, so I, wanna, I wanted to ask about the correlation. So... With the onset of COVID, there was a big dip in employment, like people, you know, shut down mm -hmm. um, uh, record unemployment rates across the nation. Um, is there any correlation with service members who were out of the job that ended up being employed with yep. this COVID response f for the past several months? I mean, were, were, were we able to fill the gap? basically yes. in our formation yes one of the things that the senior leadership of the state from the from the start the focus has always been on volunteer having a volunteer force out there and we have we have worked real hard to make sure that every person that's out of work has a job in this framework and that continues today it's it's our complete force of 800 plus service members are all volunteer no one is forced to be here at this point we did have a period of time when the the mission assignments were transitioning and we were planning on going to state active duty and, there, and there's a lot of planning things that have to happen and we were forced to mobilize some some folks that didn't want to be here uh, not that they didn't want to be here but they had they had jobs and right. so we we had to bring some folks in take them away from their jobs for a, a period of time a couple weeks in order to balance the force and get back to our all-volunteer force but mm -hmm. even today if a if a service member is out of a job, we we generally can find a need for them to keep them working in this this COVID uh, era. Yeah. To, nice. to give you an idea about that, uh, the numbers that we just got back, uh, you know, and this is the beginning of November, so this is slid a little bit, but as of right now, within our um, 853 service members that are serving, 310 of them are currently unemployed. Wow. And so mm -hmm. we've been able to uh, support those individuals with a paycheck so that their families can continue to. Um, you know, not worry about, uh, you know, about where the next paycheck's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and we think that's a, a, a positive for the National Guard and specifically for the service members. But on the flip side, we think it's even a better deal for the citizens of the state of Washington because they're getting the services that, uh, that the state really needs right now. Yeah. And on top of that, we'll, the partners we've been working with out there, uh, Department of Health, Employment Security De Department, um, 
we've built relationships where our service members who have been doing those jobs, some of them are being hired into the full-time, right. those full-time positions. So well, that's cool. It's they're, they're, they're like building those relationships while they're on the, on the job working for the, okay, so exactly. that's, that's interesting. That's awesome. Nice. Um, so we are, at least I have, I know you've been out to a couple sites mm -hmm. to talk to the soldiers that are working, soldiers, airmen that are working out there. Um, and all of the feedback has been super positive and, and everything. What have you guys heard about how they feel about being out there working with their communities? Uh, we, we have a routine. I mean, it's routine to talk to them and they, they consistently say, this is what we signed up for. Uh, the morale is through the roof at every location. Um, I can't. E I can't even remember any time where someone said any anything contrary to that right. that opinion. Um, I will tell you that we find, at least in my opinion, and sir, correct me if I'm wrong, the food banks is where we see the vast majority of the morale because they're they're working with the the population, the the citizens. Mm -hmm. um, food box construction, like we had in Seattle that where they were working in a warehouse doesn't provide the right. the impact that you know the that satisfactory like right. here's your food mm -hmm. every place where folks our folks work with the public right. is where the morale is is through the roof right um, but overall every everyone i can't think of anyone who's not uh, and happy they're to be like here. for the most part as close to where they live as possible right so those are their actual communities for the most part yes okay. i mean obviously at the beginning it was kind of all hands and we just we're putting resources where they were needed. Um, somewhere around the July timeframe, we attempted to do kind of a home of record um, relocation. So right. if you were living in a hotel in, in Olympia, but you lived in Spokane, we attempted right. to get you closer back to Spokane. And we still have somewhere around 200 plus service members that are uh, living in a hotel. Um, uh, but that's just because like Okanagan, we don't have a, right. a a large number of service members that live in Okanagan and for us to support the food bank that's at that location we've got to put people in hotels mm. makes sense that goes to a, another point that talking about your morale right. point of view is that the folks when we did a home of record scrub and we started moving people around from one food bank to another uh, Colonel McMahon and I talk about the Stockholm syndrome because they they enjoy the people they work with and when right. we move them our service members get get fairly upset because mm -hmm. they're like, "I want to stay. I want to stay." Well, we're getting you closer to home, yeah, but I want to get. I want to mm -hmm. stay. Right. Um, so we've had to work through that and message to our force that you know, the next food bank is going to be as good as the one. Right. You're it's going to be just as good. Yeah. You mm -hmm. just have to get used to the new people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so when I've been out, uh, every t every time someone lives near the area where they've been supporting it's it's really been impactful to them to see the direct influence of what they're doing especially with all of the food insecurity caused by the unemployment um, and the food banks really being as n like more needed than ever before and then having our guys out there yep. I even saw some guardsmen when I was up near Darrington uh, working at a food bank at like a little church or something like yep. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yep. I was like, I, I wanted to get out and take a picture, mm -hmm. but I was with <laughs> other people. So, so that's <laughs> okay. another misconception, or I shouldn't say misconception, but that's another um, part of the diversity is right. we have a food bank, for example, Darrington. Yep. We don't have a food bank in Darrington. Our food bank is in Cedar Woolley. 
However, right. they deliver. They deliver. So our service members are all over the state, not just in one location. It's like a spider web of, of locations. Right, for sure. Yep, and it, not sure if you're tracking all the metrics, um, but it's one of the things that we're very proud of because it demonstrates the hard work of all of our service members. Right. But just to give you an idea, so right now, in November, we're in 47 different food banks throughout the state of Washington. Yep. We've distributed over 60 million pounds of food. Yeah, we posted that one Did on you? Facebook. Yep. <laughs> Which equates to about 2.9 million meals that right. have been distributed out of the food banks. For our uh, community-based testing sites, uh, we're currently at four locations. At one time, we had five teams. Okay. Um, and we have tested over 58,000 Washingtonians for, for covid um, for our test kit assembly, um, we've got a team that's been down in Tumwater since mm-hmm. uh, almost the, the beginning of this op mm-hmm. uh, to where they have built over 300,000 test kits. And each test kit has the capacity or capability to test five individuals. And that equates to about 1.5 million tests that uh, they have built and, and helped distribute with DOH. And then our, for our COVID mapping, uh, 66,000 data entries. Uh, so we've right. had a data entry team that have uh, gone in and helped update the databases for DOH. And then we've uh, conducted over 17,000 calls to individuals who were tested uh, positive. Right. And then just kind of mapping who have they been in contact with so DOH could turn around and contact those individuals that they should probably quarantine themselves or go get tested. Yeah, I went to the DOH COVID mapping site a couple weeks ago and I think they really like that break room too. The they building. definitely love that break room. That break room is <laughs> legit. What's what's this break room? It's got like a full on fridge situation plus vending machines and like a kitchen. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's probably one other thing that that we should note. Um, this has truly been a team effort with our stakeholders. For sure. Um, whether it's a, a local food bank that's uh, in Okanagan to a, a test site in Franklin County uh, to, you know, the Department of Health's uh, building down in Tumwater. Uh, everywhere that we have gone, our, our stakeholders have also looked out for the best interest of our service members. And so uh, we, we couldn't have done everything that I just talked about uh, and all the hard work that they've done without their assistance as well. So it's truly been a team effort. For sure. Yeah. Do you have anything else? Yeah. Um, so this is this is pretty much an unprecedented event, right? We've never, there's like some things that the Guard has like literally never done before. Yep. That's like, why we refer like to COVID it. mapping and or and um what is it the employment security security. you know this is this is something that we've never done so uh bringing all that you know into into account like what have we learned from this event like as as an organization i'm sure there is yes but (laughs) but like what are some of the things that stick out that we've learned i would i would easily say that the thing that we learned is that there is nothing there's all, I can't think of anything that our service members cannot achieve success at. And be efficient at, I, be, the well, efficiency. So I was gonna bring that up too at some point. It doesn't matter which metric you look at, whether it's a food bank, whether it's a test site, whether it's mapping, our service members redefine everything that they're doing. Uh, we've had a number of locations where the food banks uh, managers tell us that, well, our, your guys changed the way we're doing it, and we're so much more efficient now. We're so bet we're so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, Even Food Lifeline too. Mm-hmm. They, I know that they changed the whole game over there. Yep. That we change. Uh, we don't change it for them. Right. They suggest how it could be a little bit more efficient right. or run smoother, and they run with it. And then 
the outcome is always success. Mm -hmm. But that's the number one thing I would say is that there's nothing that our service members can't do. How adaptable we are. Yes, exactly. That's, and that's how, phenomenal. Yeah. Yep. And, and hard work. And so, for example, you mentioned Food Lifeline. Right. Uh, Sergeant Major and I talked to him about, okay, tell us how you came up with it. Originally, we had 250 service members at that location. And they had some metrics that they had looked at as to the number of boxes and pounds of food that they wanted distributed on a daily and weekly basis. Right. And, you know, they did those metrics, and then they doubled it, thinking, okay, so this is the guard. They should be able to double um, what w what we are going to ask them to do. Right. In reality, our service members quadru yeah, quadrupled uh, what, what the metrics were to the point that uh, Food Lifeline was just flabbergasted with the efficiency and effectiveness of that team. Hmm. Now, that is a downside, too, because then they right. expect that, yes. and our service members mm -hmm. have, to, have to maintain, yeah. which they do. Right. Um, I've said this on a number of occasions that's that the what what shocks me is the drive and the ability to continue day after day month after month with the same production and that's there, there's nowhere else out there that would do that yeah and to that point one of the things that that uh, kind of lessons learned that you were asking about I think is important is it is it took us a little bit of time to communicate to uh, other leaders uh, within the state, specifically within the, uh, the Army and Air National Guard, um, that this operation is just like being deployed. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Our service members are, you know, on orders, um, and they are executing a mission that then, you know, hampers other missions. Um, but it's, uh, it's really important. It was the priority, and we think it's still one of the priorities um, uh, with everything else that we're doing. And, and to your point, you know, the, the, the Euro Guard the mm -hmm. year of the guard is the uh, kind of motto that we've been talking yeah. about. Um, so if you look at what the guard has done this year, you know, COVID set aside, fighting fires, mm -hmm. um, civil response, yep. um, you know, y you name it. And the guard has continually been asked to pick up and help. Um, and, and as Sergeant Major noted earlier, I think that's exactly why our service members have joined the Washington National Guard. For yeah. sure. As we transition later in this year, you know, we were kind of going on the timeline earlier, but now we run into, uh, we went through the COVID response. Mm -hmm. Then we had wildfires, which we, we had folks have to go participate in. Mm -hmm. We had domestic uh, civil disturbance that we sent some of our folks out to work with. Um, we have continuing deployments that are going on. So there's, there's no shortage of work that needs to be done right. by everyone and mm -hmm. shows what a great team we've got so despite all that i, I mean we've, we've talked about you know the the motivation of our our troops our service members on the line um have, have you guys i mean this has been non-stop since march have you have you seen any fatigue have you seen anybody you know just like enough is enough i want to get back to my life well we have that <laughs> we, we certainly do. We have individuals who um, they get jobs and then they need to go back or someone who had a job. Um, like the commander mentioned, we have, you know, 310 that are unemployed. That means we have, you know, 400 mm -hmm. plus that have jobs, but they're doing this because they want to. And some of them, you know, have been gone for six, eight months and they have to get back to work. Mm -hmm. And continuing, continuing with the volunteer force. Um, they can go back, they can leave when they want to. Um, I will give kudos to the commander here because uh, routinely he is pushing for days off. Um, he gives the task force commanders the, the latitude to work the, the
the hours needed in order to keep the force fresh and, and ready to go, providing that continued response all the time. And um, we've been doing a very good job of making sure that our folks uh, around holidays, not everyone gets a holiday off, mm -hmm. right. but they get some time off. If they're not off on the holiday, they get some time off later on. And that we have leave built in there. Um, so we've been doing very good on making sure yeah. everyone is is fresh and ready to go. Okay. Yeah, how has that been though, balancing everybody's, oh, so everybody's had a different experience with COVID and how it affects their family, how it affects their community, everything like that. And then how has it been balancing that work-life balance for all of the members who have cycled through the task force? That's a great question. Um, I, I would have to say that it just- It's like something military people are notoriously bad at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I'm sure, uh, like every organization, we have done very well in some areas right. and we have done poorly in others. Um, I would like to think that the vast majority of our service members have done a really good job of that life-work balance. Right. Um, we've also placed an emphasis, uh, just because we have taken away our service members from either their wing or their major subordinate right. command, who are concerned for the readiness uh, of mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that service member. Uh, to where we have uh, continually asked, hey, if, if uh, you've got opportunities, we want you to start doing PT to, to improve your PT scores. Right. Uh, we want you to go through and do all of the annual training requirements. Um, you know, the big push that we did as of late was the uh, flu shots. Yes. Um, and so uh, just kind of measuring those metrics, uh, our task force commanders and then our non-commissioned officers have done an outstanding job because uh, it's one of the the end states that Sergeant Major and I are really striving for, which is when we return a service member back to their their unit of assignment, mm -hmm. that they go back better than how we've received them. And, and to that point, um, we were briefed uh, this week that one of our task forces had 49 soldiers who had not passed a PT test uh, when they arrived. Right. Uh, to date, um, they, they have uh, 16 have uh, not been able to pass the PT test. Okay. Everybody else has. That's awesome. And so those flags are being lifted, and now those soldiers are eligible for promotions right. and for reassignments mm -hmm. to other units. Um, and so that's just, uh, I, I think, a great example of, of uh, the hard work and dedication that um, um, our, our units and our elements within the JTF are working towards. And we have other great, great stories about uh, the relationships that are built across the formation whether it's Army and Air, Army and Army, Air and Air. Um, this has provided a lot of close-knit close, close -knit work that right. builds, builds a, a better team. And we all wear the same uniform now. We, yeah. Some say Army, some say Air, but yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are, and, and, and we treat the Air the same way as we treat soldiers, and that's why we continually say service members. It took us a few weeks to get that really down yeah but, it's uh, tough when you get used to saying soldiers all the time yeah. i always catch myself and mm -hmm. i have to remind myself one of the good stories i, I think is the uh where do they have the bikes is that oh at uh white center white center the white center food bank we have individuals they have built such a team uh close-knit group at that food bank that they they were donated some i can't remember who donated a bike club donated oh. like eight or ten bicycles wow. and that group on the weekends, on their days off, get together and they go ride bikes around around the area. That's awesome. Nice. And that's across 
you know, services and uh, it's just a really good team building event. Yeah. And that's not a, a single story, they're all over. So then because of the Air Army dynamic and then all of this being new territory, are you guys leaving this um, with some new SOPs for emergency response as far as the Guard is concerned? So I'm, I don't know if we've come up with exact revised SOPs. Well, I, don't, I mean, not necessarily you wrote them down, but you yeah. got them planned in your head. I, I think so. Um, I think, you know, the Joint Operations Center um, and its efforts with what they've been able to do to, to coordinate um, the service response um, within the JTF and our efforts of dealing with, you know, whether it's the A1 and how do we take care of uh, an airman's uh, personnel issues. Right. Um, you know, I'm sure if you were to talk to Sergeant Major six months ago, he'd have had no idea what that looks like. He wouldn't understand what Arrows is or right. no PDS. Um, you know, he now knows what that is, as do I. Um, so, you know, same thing with some of our airmen uh, that are working Army issues. Right. Um, they now understand, you know, why do you guys do it that way? And then when they start to build those relationships with the other staff sections and then they realize. And so I think this has truly been an opportunity to bring that entire collective Washington National Guard together as opposed to just the Air Guard or the Army Guard. Right. Awesome. Do you have anything? I got nothing else. Unless uh, we we we've answered everything that you can come <laughs> up with. I mean, you answered all of the things that I am, can think of. Yeah. <laughs> That's not to say that you answered everything. <laughs> so uh, how's it going to go uh, yeah, I go, guess going you, forward. How do you see it going forward? Yeah, That's like like, uh, or do you, do you foresee us being drawn down? Here Mission we are, eight changing? months later. How do we? <laughs> so we're how in do next. We go from here? Yeah, we're in the process of planning for that. Um, uh, I'm sure if you talk to our service members that have been in, in the JTF the entire time, they will tell you that this is going to be round four. Uh, because mm -hmm. our mission assignment has been extended three different times, and right. each time that causes a little bit of friction regarding orders and assignments, et cetera. And we believe that that mission assignment will end at the end of December. Okay. Um, we have a plan uh, starting on the 18th of December to okay. allow those, indi those individuals that uh, want to go back to what they were doing prior to, to coming onto the JTF to take leave. Right. Um, but then we're also looking to transition about 550, 580 service members onto state active duty. Yep. Um, it's our belief that uh, the food banks will really be an enduring mission that uh, will probably be supporting until uh, you know, June of 21. At least through the holidays, exactly. I would think, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we believe that uh, over the eight months, the state has built capacity to do testing. Right. Um, and the capacity to do mapping. Right. And so those missions will more than likely go away by the end of the calendar year. And then really what, what you'll have uh, at the end of the day is uh, the enduring 47 food bank missions right. throughout the state of Washington. Hmm. All right. That makes sense to me. So it's food banks from, from here on out. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's one of those deals where, again, maybe we didn't explain this, but the reason why those food banks uh, require so much assistance is their, their support came from volunteers right. that were high risk. High risk. Right. Mm. Uh, and until there's a vaccine or until there's a, uh, you know, some significant way to mitigate the effects of COVID. And we really don't see as a state those individuals returning. Uh, and then when you look at the impact that those food banks have had, in some cases, they have had a 600% increase in need. Yes. Uh, and so, again, it, it, 
that means people are not eating and uh, people do not have the nutrition that they need in our state unless we're there to support those banks. Yeah, I think food insecurity was one of the major issues at the start and that the food bank mission has, of course, been essential to that. Yep. That. And I know when, every time I've been out, the ma- manager or director of the food bank has definitely told me about the increase in customers that they've had at yep. every food bank. Yep. So yeah. for sure, definitely important and so rewarding work at those food banks. Another great takeaway, since we get nothing but great stories, (laughs) so we were recently up in Seattle and talking to a food bank manager who did not have a high opinion of the military. All right. And he shared with us that after this relationship with the guard, uh, his opinion of the military is significantly, well I shouldn't say significantly, he said it changed. Okay. (laughs) Uh, but it changed, for the, it changed That's for the fair. positive. Might not, might not have been a lot, but it was certainly, it changed. And, and we'll take what we can get. Yeah, he, 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 found, he found the value in what we do. And so I think as we transition out of food banks and over the next however long that is, the takeaway will be that we have, we have shown the public what the Guard can do, what, that we are here for them. And I know some members intend on staying to volunteer afterwards there's been a number of individuals and that's part of getting them in the food banks close to home right. and working with the people of their community is they build those relationships and there's a number of them even on their off days now they come in when yes. they're not supposed to be in I have heard that as and well they, and they continue to work because yeah. they're just they're so invested in the in the work that they're doing so awesome mm-hmm. did we miss anything you guys want to talk about this is I just want to reiterate that the team that we have all Every person that we've had on our team, every single soldier and airman that we've had has done, a, has done an outstanding job. And they, they represent the National Guard and the professional soldiers and airmen that we are. And we couldn't have been prouder to be, be working with them. Um, wish it was for a better circumstance, but um, this has been, has been a great, for me, it's been a very rewarding period. Sure. Yeah, and the, I guess the only other thing I would note, uh, so first off, I really thank you guys for your interest uh, and an opportunity for us to highlight the great things that these service members have been doing for our state. I've also got to take a, a moment to, to thank the senior leadership and then the staffs of both the Air and the Army. And when you're dealing with so many people and trying to make sure that they're taken care of, obviously there's friction. Um, but at the end of the day, everybody has worked towards uh, ensuring that we've taken care of our airmen and our soldiers. Uh, from from their standpoint, what is best. Um, and so, again, I think it's a great representation of the entire team effort that the Washington National Guard has done to, to make this uh, operation a success. And Sergeant Major and I have reaped the benefits of everyone's hard work. And so, again, just I really appreciate you taking the time to recognize all that effort that has gone into this. Of course, it's the most interesting thing we've been doing for the last eight months. So we are very happy to highlight you guys mm-hmm. and all the great work. 